We've got with us the Premier of the province, Mr. David Deby. How are you doing? I'm really great. How are you, Shishma? Fine, thank you. Good. So I was taking notes about um, you just to before I interview Uh-oh. you. Okay. Say, <laughs> say, how tall is he? I know he's very tall. Oh, he's yeah. Six foot seven inches tall? Yeah, two meters. Holy macro. Yeah. That's a foot and seven inches taller than me. Yeah, I think um, probably close to the same height difference for my wife. Really? No <laughs> <That's kidding. right. laughs> I, I, People ask you all sorts of questions, and they're all political and all heavy-duty questions. I wanted to start the interview with a very um, you know, lighter tone. I wanted to find out, where were you born? Uh, so I was born in uh, uh, just outside of Toronto, in a place okay. called Etobicoke, mm-hmm. and I grew up in a town in southwestern Ontario called Kitchener, Ontario, Right. about an hour out of Toronto, and uh, came to BC for the first time in 2001. Wow. Yeah, so what brought been, you to BC? Uh, I followed a girl out here, and, uh, and BC stuck. Uh, <laughs> BC is beautiful. It's amazing, yeah. Is it's it? a beautiful place. I feel so lucky to live here. So um, as a child, growing up, mm-hmm. how many siblings? Uh, two brothers and a sister. Okay. So four kids. And uh, obviously with that number of kids, uh, one of the things that I learned early growing up from my parents was the importance of fairness. <laughs> Every kid got the same fair and equal treatment it was a very important principle at our house. Uh, my mom was a teacher and my dad uh, a lawyer in a small uh, firm, uh, a community lawyer, and uh, it was a it was a great place to grow up. It was a, it was a wonderful childhood with my siblings. So, is that the dad's profession that sort of um, attracted you towards law? No, uh, the opposite. Actually, I I said I absolutely didn't want to be a lawyer. There's no interest in uh, in being a lawyer, um, and uh, it. Uh, I uh, went to, did first year biology in university. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and ultimately, I made the decision um, to go into law. And, it, and some people ask, well, did you go into law to become a politician? And I actually went into law to sue politicians um, because I grew up in an era of, uh, of politicians that, in my opinion, uh, needed to be held accountable by the courts. And that, that seemed like the only way that, um, uh, that you could really respond to what was happening. And so... Uh, to actually be in this role now is uh, is certainly not uh, part of my original plan. No, of course not. I was I was thinking that lawyers and regular people think differently. Lawyers totally think out of the box and in a totally different sphere. Do you feel that? Um, y- yes and no. Um, I think that lawyers. Um, one of the things that I really learned in, in law, well, there were two, two things that I really learned. One was uh, the importance of really understanding the person who's in front of you, what they need mm. and how you can support them, that their interests are the most important. Uh, and the second thing uh, was uh, about how to look at a problem and really understand, try to figure out where the core of the problem is, right. where uh, government systems like laws or processes uh, affect that person. Um, the, the challenge with being a lawyer is that lawyers, I, it hasn't been my experience necessarily that lawyers uh, think outside the box. The best lawyers are the ones who can think inside the box, inside the system, understand the rules mm. so well, work within those rules. I always struggled with that because I'm like, this is not, we're talking about the rules of procedure, but I want to talk about the injustice that my client has faced. I don't want to be arguing about whether or not this document needs to be disclosed or not, whatever. Let's talk about the actual problem. And that's why politics was attractive to me, because you could actually talk about what the problem was. Mm -hmm. You're still dealing with the law and a a regular way of dealing with it, but you could actually um, 
talk about the problem and potentially solve the problem, which wasn't but, always the case in law. No. Uh, and for lawyers, there are lawyers that are defending their client and maybe the client has murdered somebody or hurt somebody. And then, then the, there's the other lawyer who's defending the person who's been hurt. So as a lawyer, when you were learning all this, did you lean towards protecting the person that is hurt, the victim? Mm. Or did you ever think, I, I would like to protect the person who is the perpetrator as well? Yeah, my interest was always, um, you know, uh, about power. Mm. You know, who doesn't have the power here? Who needs the help and the support? That was always the kind of law that I wanted to do. Um, and that's why I started uh, my legal career in the downtown east side of Vancouver. These people have absolutely no power um, and kind of uh, um, taken advantage of, preyed on by all kinds of different people. Right. And I thought, you know, here's where I can dedicate my energy to, to helping their voice get heard uh, and use the system to benefit them for once instead of uh, driving them further out uh, to the edges. And so that, that, was, that was the thing that really... Um, gave me the energy to do the job was like, okay, I'm helping this person. I'm addressing a bully or someone who's pushing them around or, or using power in a way that's abusive. Uh, and that's where I found my energy to do that work. This morning you um, made a very interesting announcement and it, there's a lot of emotions around it. Mm. Can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I um, Just before Christmas, um, I uh, had a, in this job as premier, you have these moments when you talk to people who have suffered unimaginable tragedies. Yes. And I had one of those really challenging calls before Christmas. I talked to this guy, Ryan Cleland. And Ryan's son, Carson, um, was on uh, one of these uh, cell phone apps, uh, Snapchat, was contacted by a predator uh, somewhere around the world, uh, pretending to be a girl about uh, Carson's age, uh, convinced Carson to send some pictures to her. It wasn't actually her. It was a guy. It was a grown man. Uh, and uh, and then said, if you don't send me gift cards, money, I'm going to send this, these pictures to all your friends and your family. And Carson was in such a panic and felt so alone. He took he ended up taking his own life. The whole thing took 12 hours. Just 12 hours. 12 hours from when he was first contacted through his phone, through Snapchat, to when he took his own life. And his parents are obviously devastated. But they came forward and they talked about this. And they said, this is what happened to our family. Please talk to your kids. Uh, tell them that this can happen. And when they did that, people called them from all around BC, around the world, saying, we saw your story. We talked to our kids. It turns out our kid was in the same situation. We didn't even know it. They were talking to strangers. They had shared pictures. And so I had this conversation with Ryan. And, uh, and I said, listen, we're going to make sure that Carson's life uh, uh, leaves a legacy of uh, protecting other kids. And so we worked with his family. I uh, worked with the attorney general. And... Um, and we made an announcement, and the Minister of Education, Rashna Singh, how do we keep kids safe? I know parents are really anxious about that. Yeah. Um, and so today's announcement was about restricting cell phone use in schools. Yes. So parents don't feel that pressure, their kid has to have a cell phone. Um, going after these social media companies to say it's not acceptable for you to set up a space for kids and then allow these predators to come in to contact them, to have these exchanges, to ask for pictures, for pictures to be sent. You have systems to block this, you need to do it. And, uh, and uh, we have, uh, we'll be introducing a law that allows us to sue the companies that don't make uh, safety a priority for kids. And uh, finally, uh, for, for people who face this situation where there are um, very personal pictures of them and someone wants to post them or they've used AI mm -hmm. or they've used Photoshop to create fake pictures of them to post them online, 
that there is a very simplified process they can go through in BC to get an order that they get taken down. And we've worked with the major companies to be able to have an expedited process where those orders can be sent and these pictures can be taken down right away. Mm-hmm. So those are the three things today. Uh, a lot of it informed by the experience of the Cleveland family. Mm-hmm. Obviously devastating for them. So were you thinking about this earlier or, or did this incident make you think about, you know, asking the schools to require all cell phones and electronic devices not to be taken into classes or switched off, put in their backpacks? Yeah, for me, Carson's case uh, illustrated a couple of things. There's a big discussion right now taking place about how do we keep our kids safe in school? Parents are anxious about their kids' safety. Uh, And uh, it really brought home for me, Carson's case, where the actual threats are. Teachers are helping kids figure out how to deal with bullying, how to be safe online. School librarians are too. They're not the threat. There are political actors out there who want parents to think that it's the teachers and librarians are the threat. It's not the case. They're the ones helping kids respond to these incidents when they show up. And and where are the actual threats? The threats are these predators who contact kids online. The threats are kids having unrestricted access to the whole internet, extreme violence, pornography, uh, just uh, unimaginable things that young people have never been exposed to in this way. And so um, it really brought home for me, okay, government has a role here to support parents that are anxious about their kids' safety at school, Mm -hmm. to support teachers so that they're able to ensure that kids are learning in the classroom instead of sitting on their phones. Uh, And um, and we're going to take those steps. Just before we started this interview, I was saying to you that I think this announcement is going to make uh, kids very unhappy and parents very happy. <laughs> Do you yeah. see that happening? This morning at breakfast, my son, I said to my son, you know what I'm doing today, Ezra? He's nine. <laughs> There's two kids in his class with cell phones, grade right. four. And they gather at recess, my son tells me, around the phones and they watch videos in the yard. I just like, makes me very anxious about that. But uh, in any event, I said, as uh, today I'm going to announce we're going to be um, restricting cell phones. We're going to be banning cell phones in school. He was like, whoa, dad, you're going to be the number one enemy at my school. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, it, it, two things. One was it was it was funny. Uh, the other is it really drove home for me how his school only goes to 12 years old. It only right. goes to grade seven. And mm. cell phones are already such a central part of a kid's school experience at that age. Well, I, I see parents just give an iPad or an iPhone to their children to shut them up mm. when they are amongst other friends. I'll, I'll, I'll be put, honest, put a... <laughs> I have to be honest. You know, uh, there's uh, doctor's offices or uh, long drives or whatever where yes. uh, the, the iPad uh, has saved us. <laughs> it's the only reason we're thinking about having a third kid. I don't judge parents in that situation. <laughs> I've been there myself. We do it all the time. The, 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 this is an anti-technology. This is unsupervised access that kids yes. have, unrestricted access. And then when they have these social media apps that you think are safe, but actually they have algorithms designed to show them the edgy content to keep mm. them online, uh, feed them unrealistic body images, make them feel anxious. They're not uh, living up to a certain standard. Uh, we're seeing that show up in all kinds of negative ways in our hospitals and youth mental health. Mm-hmm. And that's what this is about. I want to change the topic a little bit and bring it to the latest snow that we had. Um, and last year was uh, a preview of what was going to happen this year. But, but I don't think anybody learned from last year's 11, 12 hours worth of driving to get home. Um, the infrastructure in British Columbia, let's just talk about the big cities, okay? I know that the feds give some money as well. But is it isn't it the province's responsibility along with the municipalities to make sure 
that all the roads are clear and sorted and so on and so forth because they find out 24 hours in advance that it's going to be snowing the following day. What happens? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think anyone in the lower mainland who hears a snow forecast knows uh, that we we don't always do the best uh, in uh, in South Vancouver Island, the lower mainland, when it comes to snow. During that big snowfall, I was up in Prince George. Uh, and uh, all the people in Prince George were laughing as I talked about snow during a press conference <laughs> to the media that were in the Lower Mainland because it's such a different experience from Prince George. Um, the uh, uh, people are right to expect, and they should be able to have uh, clear roads as quickly as possible. Even in areas worth a lot of snow where they uh, deal with this all the time, uh, there is a period of time when the, there's snow on the roads, mm-hmm. there's ice on the roads, areas like Prince George. Um, and, uh, and, uh, one thing that I've really tried to underline this year is we have such unusual weather right now. Yes. People, uh, previously may have been like, oh, we don't need winter tires in the lower mainland. We don't need winter tires in South Vancouver Island. You actually do because we're getting multiple days of snow. We saw minus uh, one day, minus uh, 15, minus 20 That's degrees right. in Vancouver, uh, and ice. And, and so if you don't have winter tires on, you're not going to be able to get around. You're going to cause chaos for other people. And also, uh, uh, I think we have done better uh, in terms of road clearing uh, provincially and municipally because uh, we've started sharing information and working more closely with the cities following mm-hmm. last year's uh, winter snowstorms. Um, but it, it is important for all of us to do our part, including the winter tire piece. I really encourage people to make sure they have those winter tires on. So with the uh, climate change, uh, the way it is changing Although I did see that in 1958, we had a huge snowstorm as well. So 58 is a long time ago, and that wasn't when people were worried about climate change. Mm -hmm. Climate change today is a hot topic Mm -hmm. and a buzzword everywhere. So if this climate change continues to be an issue with everybody, do you foresee British Columbians having to have snow tires as a mandatory uh, for all people who are driving cars should have snow tires during, say, November to February. Yeah, there, there are significant parts of our province where those tires are mandatory. Yes. And uh, and there are parts where it's not, Lower Mainland, South Vancouver Island. And and I, I just think it's important for no, people to know if you don't have snow tires on, choose not to put them on. Just don't go out until the roads are clear. Uh, and, and, uh, and it is a really good idea to put them on. In terms of what we're seeing uh, that really keeps me up at night about climate change, mm. it's the drought. It's the lack mm-hmm. of rain. We're in year four now of an extended drought. Parts of the province in the most severe drought level right now. We have 100 forest fires that are still burning right now. Wow. Really unusual. The snowpack's about half of what it normally is. BC Hydro wasn't able to generate as much power from its dams because there's less water. The Cowichan River um, would have dried up this summer, except it was kept alive by giant pumps mm. uh, that pumped water in to keep the fish alive. It's quite a dire situation. And so it's caused us to do a couple things for BC Hydro to make sure that their new call for power uh, complements the dams, use solar and wind renewables uh, so that um, we don't have to rely entirely on the dams, that they Mm -hmm. can back each other up. Um, For uh, working with farmers about how we prioritize water use uh, and uh, and putting money into infrastructure for water storage when things are raining, mm. uh, when the, we're in the wetter seasons, uh, so that it's available for us throughout the year. Uh, but that is, when we're looking at the forest fire season coming up, that is a huge anxiety for me about how we're seeing climate change show up here. You talked about hydro. Um, brings me to a topic of uh, everybody um, thinking of going uh, electric with their cars. Wouldn't that mean that we would be using more hydro? And how does that 
fit into the picture. Yeah, it, it does mean we'll be using more hydro. And it's not just that. Um, these new heat pumps that are both air conditioners and heaters built in a lot. Climate change, a lot of people are looking for air conditioners in the right. lower mainland that would have previously gone the summer before without. And they're buying these heat pumps, which use a lot of electricity. Um, and uh, so we're going to see more and more electrical demand. But it's not just personal use, it's industry too. Mm. Our big mining companies want to switch from uh, diesel to electricity because it's cheaper for them and it's better for their climate records. Uh, we have a huge hydrogen industry that wants to come to BC and use our electricity to make hydrogen for export, which is great, mm. but we need that electricity. So uh, we announced a $36 billion uh, uh, capital program for BC Hydro to retrofit our dams to get more electricity from them, mm -hmm. to build out the transmission networks across the province to get electricity to places where we don't have it right now, uh, and to support growing communities. Because uh, in addition to the increased demand for electricity, there's also more people. Um, so to build out that network. So we don't have the situation that Alberta had, that Washington State had during, mm. the, during the cold snap, where they ran out of power and had to rely on us to back them up. That's right. You talked about um, two cities that are really going through uh, explosion in population, mm. and that's Ontario and British Columbia. Mm -hmm. As a premier of our province, and this government has been there for the past six years, what sort of, what keeps you, I mean, you mentioned about drought keeping you up at night. Mm. Um, the influx of people coming into British Columbia and how are we going to be uh, getting them to be fitted into our province does that keep you awake at night? Uh, it does. Um, so the issue where this has really shown up is the issue of international students, mm. the national level. Um, we had, uh, I think, somewhere on the neighborhood of 150,000 uh, temporary residents, which are temporary form workers and international students. We get to those kinds of volumes. It's very difficult for us to make sure that these students have a positive experience in British Columbia. They can uh, be taken advantage of by unscrupulous immigration brokers, Which they do. schools, employers, landlords. We hear about people living, uh, you know, 12, 15 people to a house. Yes. Um, you know, and, uh, and some of these schools not providing even basic education. So um, I'm glad the federal government is addressing uh, some of these numbers. We're doing our part as well, uh, addressing some of these schools that uh, are not meeting our minimum standards and expectations. But ultimately, where we need to get to with the feds on immigration is to match up immigration with the housing supply that we have, because uh, it is uh, critical that when people get here, they have a positive experience, mm -hmm. even if they're here temporarily, yes. that they go back home and they say, you know, I had such a wonderful experience in British Columbia, and they maintain those ties for trade and for uh, relationships and cultural exchanges is so important. Instead of going back and say, you wouldn't believe the experience I had, I was taken advantage of by this person and that person and this person, uh, and I couldn't find a place to live and so on. So uh, having the federal government uh, be our partners in that is really uh, critically important. You talked about uh, uh, students. I, I wanted to talk about a little bit about uh, Airbnb. Mm. Um, that was an issue. And how is that going to be resolved if you stop people renting their places for a little time. Uh, they're not going to be making any money. So cost of living in British Columbia, in Canada, I think, the whole of Canada is so high mm -hmm. that um, $60,000, in my mind, long time ago, was a decent salary to have. 120000 is now the decent salary to have to run a household of two people. Um, 
people don't make that kind of money. Mm-hmm. Um, people want to make money every which way. Maybe if they've got um, you know uh, a suite somewhere where they can rent for people coming in to visit British Columbia. Mm-hmm. Why not? Why? What was behind putting a stop to Airbnb rentals? Sure. So I think, I mean, I don't know how many of your listeners uh, use Airbnbs or VRBO or whatever, but um, for our family, it works really well. Mm. You know, you have a place, it's got a kitchen, you know, yeah. you're able to uh, find, even if there's not a hotel in the area, you're able to find a place to stay quite easily. Uh, this is uh, uh, not an, a, an attack on the idea of that. Uh, this is to address a very serious problem we had in our province of uh, record growth of conversion of what used to be uh, homes for people to live in, either to buy or to rent, into short-term rental. So to recognize that, as you say, people are struggling with affordability, they want to rent out a suite on Airbnb, um, that's fine. You uh, are allowed under these rule changes to rent out one uh, suite mm-hmm. on your property, mm-hmm. uh, your principal residence. It could be your home, it could be a suite uh, on short-term rental. Um, but you're not allowed to buy up condos uh, and run uh, hotels through Airbnb as a, a sideline business. Uh, we actually need those condos for rental housing. We need mm-hmm. them for people as a place to live. And uh, the the scale of the growth we were seeing in listings on Airbnb and the conversion of those homes that we need for people to live in, um, we needed to do something. And so this is the measure we took, trying to find that balance you can still uh, do Airbnb. You can still rent out your place that way. You just can't run four or five, six uh, units. You can't compete with families looking for a place to live uh, with uh, a short-term rental. So what sort of reaction are you are you having? Um, there are some people who are pretty unhappy. Yeah. Uh, there are people who have bought uh, homes and condos intending to use them as an investment, as mm-hmm. an Airbnb rental. Uh, they have um, uh, decided to sell and they're not happy about it. Um, and I understand it. I understand why they're not happy. I just don't understand why they're surprised. When we were elected, we said very clearly, uh, if you are uh, seeing housing as a place to uh, invest and you're not creating new mm-hmm. housing, you're not building housing for people, you're just taking housing away, mm-hmm. uh, our government is going to address that issue because we have to build a lot of new housing. So your investment is welcome there. Uh, but if you're uh, using your investment to take housing away from people, to leave a place vacant, short-term rentals, all these different things, uh, then we're going to be addressing that. And I, I, I said uh, in response to some of the concerns, listen, we also have a flipping tax coming. So if you make your money by buying and flipping homes, uh, that tax is coming as well. Now is the time for you to uh, recognize that we've got a budget coming up. Uh, the flipping tax is coming and uh, people need to be prepared for that. I don't want people to be surprised. No. I understand if they disagree, but I don't want them to be surprised. We need homes for people. My final question to you. Yeah. I don't think you're going to be happy with this one. It's about the opioid crisis that we have in British Columbia. Um, I'm sure that's the third thing that keeps you awake. So I don't think you sleep at night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, my kids uh, see see to that. And, and, it, and it's also thinking about my kids, like why this is such an awful issue. You know, when you think about um, how someone's life can be changed by just making one bad decision, mm. deciding to to uh, take a drug that someone offers to them, maybe someone they like, maybe someone they trust, uh, and having that be the end of their life is so awful. And there's so many families who have been affected by this across the province. Uh, more than 13,000 people have died uh, since the public health emergency was declared. And it's one of the hardest issues for government. You know, when, when someone makes that decision to use that street drug, they don't know where it came from. In that moment, when they make that decision, how do we uh, encourage them to make the right decision not to do it? 
Um, so uh, you'll see uh, advertising mm-hmm. uh, the government is doing about uh, the toxic drugs that are out there. For people who are struggling with addiction, we opened 180 new uh, treatment beds, yes. including some that used to cost uh, thousands of dollars are now free through the public system. They're very high quality treatment mm-hmm. so that people have a chance to deal with addiction, rebuild their lives. If you're struggling with addiction, there are all kinds of new beds coming on. Uh, There are beds for uh, moms with kids. There are beds for different cultural groups. There are beds that meet the needs of older people, younger people. Please reach out to a doctor or a nurse to the system because we can really uh, give you a chance to rebuild your life. And I've met people who have done it. There was a guy, Richard, yesterday at the press conference. Uh, His life was changed by treatment. He's he's, uh, two years clean. Uh, and, uh, and he's turned his life around and he's telling people, please do this. I meant there was another guy, uh, Stefan at the press conference. He said he's been four years without using drugs. He helped his kid with a science program. He's a father to his kid. He didn't die. Uh, and the treatment that his mom had to pay $60,000 for is now a bed that the provincial government covers the cost for so that people can do this. So please reach out. Uh, the, the, the system is expanding. Uh, we're trying to get people care as quickly as possible. I take this opportunity and thank you very much for coming to our studios and answering all my questions. Wow. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, no, it's a pleasure. Thank you.